find this on page 1212 of the Bible in front of you. You can also see uh, the words behind me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Paul Ramsey, like Adam said. Uh, It is a joy to be with you this morning, to be preaching God's word for us, to be sitting under God's word together, as it were. Uh, It's one of the joys of my life to get to stand up here and preach to the church. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of 1 John. Uh, This is written by John, the Apostle John, who wrote the fourth gospel. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And that fourth fourth gospel tells the story of the life of Jesus. And the reason John could write that is because he knew Jesus personally. John was one of the 12 disciples who Jesus called together and then spent three years with teaching them, demonstrating to them the kind of ministry that he would leave them with when he departed from them. And in this letter, the Apostle John has been addressing a significant problem that's been, that, that had arisen in the life of the early church. There was a group of teachers who are often referred to as the secessionists who had seceded. They'd separated themselves, uh, left the fellowship of the early churches that the apostles Um, were in charge of, and they had begun to teach different things about who Jesus was, about who God is, about the scriptures, about the kind of life that God wants us to live together, and so forth, calling into question the authority of the eyewitnesses, the apostles themselves. And the message of these secessionists was apparently quite attractive. There are some who had left the church to join these alternate communities. There are also those who hadn't left yet, but who are asking questions probably about the teaching. Maybe even suggesting that they they bring some of the teaching of these other teachers into the apostolic church. And so John is seeing this division and it's breaking his heart. But even more concerning uh, is the fact that what is being taught is is, is leading people away from Jesus, leading people away from God. And so John has written this letter very clearly. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've heard John clearly writing about the truth of who Jesus is, of who God is, and of what that means for our lives. And John, one of the things he's done is he's given us a few tests by which to know whether or not these teachers who are teaching different things than the apostles are from God. Last week, uh, Brandon preached on a passage that introduces something of a faith test. You will know that someone doesn't know God if they don't believe in Jesus for who he is, that he took on flesh. If someone talks about things like the world being bad, the spiritual realm being good, and that God being too good to have fully entered the earth, that Jesus wasn't fully human, then you know that that person has not been born of God. Elsewhere, John has given us 
what you could call an ethical test. Does a person strive to live in line with the teachings of Jesus or do they just say that they believe in Jesus and then live however they would like? And then this week, John brings us to the love test. Verse 7b, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And just as these secessionists will fail the faith test and they'll fail the ethics test, they will likewise fail the love test. They'll be known as false teachers because though they may profess to know God, if they don't love their Christian brothers and sisters the way that Jesus loved them, their profession is empty. And John's not setting up these tests to set up a test for perfection, as though somehow Christians need to live perfectly in line with the standards of faith, ethics, and love that Jesus set. But these aren't, John's not addressing really in this letter, talking about the secessionists, these aren't ordinary Christians who are living lives of repentance, seeking to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus. These are teachers who are seeking to lead people away from their pastors with a new teaching a new enlightened understanding of who Jesus is, they were probably saying, of what Jesus really taught. And so when you come across teachers like this purporting to tell you something new, some new understanding, he says, look at their lives. Listen closely to what they say. How are they saying it? What, do, how, how, what, are the, what, what does their lived life demonstrate about the position of their hearts? And as we look into our passage for this morning, I think that John's words about love are going to be every bit as clear and poignant for us today as they were to John's readers 2,000 years ago. This passage is both somewhat simple conceptually and heavy-hitting content-wise. John tells us that we are to love one another because God himself is love, and those who truly know him will embody his love. He goes on to tell us that the essence of this love is not some abstract concept or feeling— but that it is demonstrated clearly and practically in God sending his son as a sacrifice for our sake. And then John circles back to the exhortation to love one another and tells us why, because Christians' love for one another is how the world will know me and my love, right? So for our time this morning, what I want to do is look at those three things pretty much in the order that John presents them to us. First, we're going to look at what it means to know God and his love. Second, we're going to look at how God demonstrates his love for us. And then third, we're going to look at how we get to demonstrate his love for the world around. And so as we, as we begin, look with me, if you would, at verse 7. And let me read verses 7 and 8. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The first thing that John brings us to in this passage is that truly knowing God leads to a life marked by love. Look at the wording with me. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. Right, so if you've been born of God and therefore know God, this will man itself, manifest itself in you being a loving person yourself. If you don't love, then that must mean that you don't know God because God himself is love. Love, love, love. It appears 13 times, 15 times in, this, in these six verses if you include the two beloveds. For John, to know God is to know love because God is love. It's impossible to truly know God without demonstrating this love. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage and it taught us our need for new birth, the need to be born again. 
right? To love with the kind of love that John is talking about is an otherworldly love, which comes not through conceptual thought, not through figuring out the right way to love people around us, but through being born again. And you see, there are many people who are familiar with Christian teaching, many people who may even teach and know certain things about God and think that that means that they know God, but who don't actually know God. And that's because knowing God and knowing about God are two very different things. To see what John is doing here, it may be helpful to know what's going on in the background for John and his readers. In the background, in this culture in which these early churches find themselves, there are two worlds colliding. Right? In the fourth century before this happened, fourth century BC, the conquest of Alexander the Great caused the Greek Empire to spread east and engulf much of the Middle East, bringing with it the spread of Greek culture and thought. You may have heard of Hellenism or the Hellenization of the ancient world. That's what this is talking about. The Greek thought, uh, which was a rich culture coming from the West, from Greece, and encountering this rich culture that was already present in the East, in the Middle East. And this created some real upheaval. Judaism in the Eastern world encountered new ways of thinking and engaging with the things of God, which, while of course not all bad, did lead to some problems. Particularly in a moment in which the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, who was the Jewish Messiah, Messiah, particularly in the event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that marked a change in how Jews understood their relationship with God. And so there were many who took the opportunity to reinterpret with the help of this Western thought, many things uh, that they had previously seen through an Eastern lens. Here's what I mean. One of the challenges is that there's a key difference between Jewish and Greek understandings of God. For the Jew, God is understood as personal, as living, as active, as engaged. For the Greek, the concept of deity is much more abstract in character. And while this isn't a perfect distinction, this is actually a helpful way to understand the difference between Eastern and Western thought in general in a way that echoes up to the present day. Eastern thought tends to be more practical, more concrete, more tangible. Think God is my rock. God is my shepherd. God is my refuge. God is patient with me. Western thought, which to say it explicitly, we are from the Western school of thought, the Roman Catholic Church was the Western church that then came West. Western thought is more heady, for lack of a better way to put it, more abstract, more theoretical. Think God is omniscient. God is sovereign. God is perfect. God is love. These are more abstract terms. Of course, both Eastern and Western thought engage with both abstract and concrete categories. But while the Western impulse is to look at the real world around and try to come up with abstract ideas and concepts up in the clouds, Eastern impulse is to, the Eastern impulse is to take those abstract ideas and get them onto the ground into real life as quickly as possible. Take love, for example. Greek, Western thought tends to focus on the abstract or theoretical, focuses on explanation, on being able to describe a concept exhaustively. To know something is to be able to describe or define it. Love is hard to pin down though. And so for the Westerner, we can talk about love, but it's really hard to describe. Eastern thought doesn't really have the same difficulty. Rather than the focus being on explanation, the focus in an Eastern mindset is on experience. To know something is to, experience it. Is, is to experience it. So love is 
a father caring for his children. Love is a wife delighting in her husband. Love is laying down your life for your friends. One is not better than the other. Easterners and Westerners can and should learn from one another. As the Apostle Paul wrote himself, who is a Hellenized Jew, there's neither Jew nor Greek, all are one in Christ Jesus. So the best of both worlds is to have both people in the room interpreting the scriptures together. But in the background of what John is talking about here is a problem that seems with the words he chooses to point to something that's particularly prevalent within the Greek Western mindset. Whoever loves knows God. Whoever doesn't love does not know God. For the Greeks who were likely quite influential for these secessionist teachers, speaking about God in abstract terms would have been the norm. Right? So these would have been people who learned many things, who read the scriptures, who then took a lot of the things that they heard about God and brought them into the realm of ideas. They fiddled with them, mixed them around, tried to make sense of them themselves, and then brought them back down in the form of new teaching. The problem is that this is not ultimately what it means to know God. Knowing God is not merely about a set of teachings. It's not merely about having a set of doctrines. It's primarily about relationship. When John says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, he's using deeply experiential and relational terms. You know when someone comes up to you and says, do you know so-and-so? And you say, yeah, I know him. That may be true in a sense, but what if they go back to that person and say, oh yeah, hey, Paul told me that you, you know, he knows you. You say, who? There's a moment of confusion that person has. Wait, I thought you said you know this person. Well, I you know, met him once. I know of him, I know a lot about him, but really I just kind of met him once. That doesn't mean that you know him, at least not in the way that John is using the verb to know in this passage. You may know many things about a person. You may know where he went to college. You may know how many brothers and sisters he has. You may know his favorite food, his favorite books, his favorite movies, those kinds of things. But that doesn't mean that you know him. And so it is with God. Here, John is identifying one of the problems that he's seeing. He says, anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Clearly, there are people claiming to know God, but who are not demonstrating God's love. And as John identifies the problem, notice what he doesn't say. John doesn't say, anyone who doesn't love like this must not understand what love is. That's not what John says, is it? As if the problem is with understanding. You know what you need? You need to hit the library, brother. You're having a hard time loving people. You need to go read a book on love. You need to go find a good teacher who can explain love better to you. That's not what John says. Instead, he says, the reason that you don't love is because you don't know God. Because God is love, and if you knew him, you would love. I'm reading a book right now called Marks of the Messenger, which is a short little book by a guy named J. Max Stiles on the topic of evangelism. Um, and early on in the book, he identifies a concern that he has with present-day evangelism. And he zooms right in on the problem of relationship, Christianity, he says is far too often thought of as a set of doctrines or a set of teachings that you need to ascribe to in order to be in. And as a result, evangelism is often reduced to sharing a set of particular truths with people. It certainly, of course, has to include sharing a set of important truths with people. But if we're not careful, 
if that's all we understand evangelism to be, then we will set up systems and processes that you don't have to be a Christian to be an evangelist to do. And the author tells a story of his friend named Clay, and I want to read, this is just three paragraphs. He said this, My friend Clay graduated with honors from a prestigious college in Kentucky. Since he majored in religion, attending seminary was the natural next step. After graduating from the seminary, he took a position as a senior pastor with a small but respectable church in a medium-sized city in the southern United States, First Presbyterian Church. First Pres had a growing youth group, and though Clay was busy with the normal work given to senior pastors, he pitched in with the youth. That included helping them with a youth retreat at, where else, Disney World. Clay said one evening he dropped into a session to hear the speaker who was explaining the gospel to the kids, and there had an astounding realization. He had never put his faith in Christ. Clay had been educated in religion. He had been a good student. He was a nice guy, moral and upright, hardworking. His whole life involved religious work. Clay was an ordained pastor in a large denomination. But he was not a Christian. Not until there, in an Orlando auditorium with hundreds of kids, Clay silently for the first time repented of his sin and placed his faith in Jesus. How is it that Clay could have missed the gospel? There are many answers, but both Clay and I believe it's because so many have added human thinking to the gospel message. Max Stiles, in this book, in that little story, highlights and helps us to zoom in on the problem that we have with love, I think, that John is addressing here. We too often think that we know what love is ourselves. We think that we have it in the resources of our human thinking to know what love is. When we begin to study the things of God, it's easy to get carried away and think, ah, yes, I know what you're talking about. And then we run off in our own direction. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you start talking about something and they take over and say, oh yeah, I know that. And they go off in a totally different direction. Picture the Olympics are going on. Picture going up to someone and saying, you know, I was watching Olympic table tennis last night. Have you, have you seen any of it? And they say, and they laugh and say, oh yeah, man, what a ridiculous thing. It was so funny to watch. I don't even know why it's an Olympic sport. And you're sitting there thinking, well, it's not exactly why I was bringing up table tennis. I actually thought it was really cool uh, and that the, the gold medalist deserved the gold medal. But you know, you, you, see, you get the point. Bring up something and then someone will say, oh yeah, and they'll take it off in a different direction. It happens more frequently uh, uh, than you might think. Far too often, we come to this phrase in verse eight, God is love, and do the same thing. Right, we, we, we hear the phrase, God is love, and say, ah, I know what, I know what love is. We, we, the, we're so often tempted to lift this idea off the page and think that God is love can be understood as a standalone concept. And this leads people often to flip it around and say things like, I know what love is. If God is love, and I know what love is, therefore, I can go back and understand who God is based on my understanding of love. And it is true that according to the Bible, as image bearers of God, we are capable of love, even without being Christians. Human beings are capable of love. The problem is that in every human being, the lover within us is broken. Rather than loving God and others as we were created to, our hearts gravitate towards idols which terminate on ourselves rather than others. 
Even our most generous, loving relationships are tainted by our inherent self-concern and self-centeredness. And so when we bring our broken selves to the table and try to define what John means here by saying, okay, if God is love, I know what love is, therefore I know God, we run into all kinds of problems. There are things that each of us love, that each of us wants, that God does not love and that God does not want us to pursue. If our primary source of understanding God is our own understanding of love, then we will each come to a different picture of what God looks like based on the things that we want rather than the other way around. We might begin to think that if we love it, then God must want us to have it. And so rather than seeking for our loves to be shaped by and around the love of God, we try to shape God around the things that we love. So often we don't even realize that we're doing it. But if we read on, we see that John helps us to avoid doing this. Because immediately after saying God is love, he brings the statement out of the clouds and into the real world. Verses 9 and 10 say this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So rather than leaving the statement, God is love, just hanging in the air for us to interpret and define however we will, in the abstract realm, God, or excuse me, John tells us exactly what he means. He says, this is what I mean by love. God sent his son for our sake that we might have life. When I say God is love, I have specifically in mind God and what he has done. God who is continually giving of himself for the sake of others, for their benefit. God demonstrated self-giving love in eternity past between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in an eternal loving union with one another. All that exists in creation is an overflow of God's self-giving love. He created all things and gave us life as an expression of his love. And in sending his only son into the world, he did this so that we might live through him. Originally, he gave humanity life and we squandered it. But because of his great love for us, he gave himself once again sending his only son, incurring this, the penalty of sin that was death himself so that we might live once again through him. And so you see what John is doing. John is pulling the locus of where love is to be defined and found away from us and towards God. He does the exact same thing in verse 10. This is love, not that we have loved him, but that he has loved us. John says, God is love, and he knows that we are going to be tempted to try to turn it around and make, make ourselves the focal point of what love is. And he's drawing us outside of ourselves to say, no, 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 God is love. God's love is not in response to our love. He says there in verse 10, God is the one who took the first step in loving us. Love is primarily God's action, not our action. As one commentator put it, our act was to sin, God's act was to love and send. You see, John is intent on contrasting us with God in this way, in such a way that it helps us understand what true love is. And listen, John's primary interest isn't one of correction. 
necessarily. He is addressing the teaching of the secessionists, yes. He is addressing the problem of the human heart, yes. But if you notice in this language, he's not railing on our inability to love as if his goal is to drop the hammer on us and have us consider just how little we know about love. Instead, John's interest is clearly to get us to look away from ourselves and to God. He contrasts us with God in a way that helps us understand God's perspective on us. There are those who think that they know God, but they really don't, as demonstrated by their lack of love. But rather than dwelling on this inability to love, John says, look at God. If you're trying to find out what love is, don't look at all of the examples around you that aren't what love is. Look at the one who demonstrated to you what love truly is. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made known to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Look at him. Look at him who demonstrated this love for us. And in case we missed it, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the substitutionary sacrifice, atoning for our sins and our guilt before God. It would be one thing if we loved God and God blessed us with salvation in return. But that's not, that's not what happened. It was for his enemies that Jesus came and gave himself. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? The hymn goes. This is what love is. And as we read on, we realize why it's so important for us to get this first, to be recipients of this kind of love first. Because when John circles back to our love for one another, verse 11, he tells us what this means for us. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So to paraphrase, not only did God manifest his self-giving love for us in sending Jesus in order to die for our sins, which he certainly did that, but not only that, Jesus also came as an example for us of the kind of love that we get to demonstrate to one another. You may see the problem that this presents us with if we haven't first been deeply loved ourselves. If you're supposed to love others for their sake, expecting nothing in return, won't you get taken advantage of? Yes. When this happens, should you take vengeance on a person or at least just maybe stop loving them the way that you've been trying to love them? No. This is why we're so often reminded of the inheritance that we have in Christ. Loving others is very costly. You will not get everything in this life. Especially if you live a sacrificial life for the sake of others, you may get taken advantage of. You may get manipulated. You may get abused and even killed. Like Abel, like Jesus. But our reward is not in this body or in this life. It is in our resurrected body and in the eternal life that is to come. And now we do often get to enjoy foretastes of this. There's real joy to be found in living the life of self-giving love. In the community of the church, where this life is designed to be lived, living sacrificially for the sake of one another is a win-win. If I'm living for your sake and you're living for my sake, then that is the kind of competition where the, the competition is, how much can I love and serve you 
not how much can I get loved and served by you. If that's the competition that we're in together, then that is a delightful relationship to be a part of, a delightful community to be a part of. But even in the Christian community, even among Christian friends, even within Christian marriages, this will never be perfect. You will never have your expectations and needs fully met. You will find yourselves in moments where you have been taken advantage of, where you have been deeply hurt by someone who should have loved you. And the thing is, it is precisely in these moments that God meets us. It is precisely in this valley where we learn what love truly is. Psalm 23 is a beautiful psalm written by King David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's a beautiful psalm. David is fully satisfied in God. He ends it with surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is fully satisfied in God. And if you know about that psalm, you know what happens right in the middle is David tells us where he is while he's writing that psalm. Right after saying, there is no need that I have that you're not meeting God, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. David enjoys this delightful, fulfilling relationship of love with God while he is in the valley. Sometimes it is in the valley, in the darkness, that the light of love from God shines the brightest. He writes this psalm as he's fleeing for his life. In one instance, we're told in the book of 1 Samuel that King Saul, who is seeking to kill David, is chasing him down and David and his men are hiding in a cave and Saul walks into the cave and we're told that David has a chance to kill King Saul, this man who's been trying to kill him. His friends are egging him on to do it and David says, no, I'm not gonna touch the king. He had the opportunity to take vengeance but he didn't do it. Instead, he placed his trust in the Lord, seeing that even in the presence of his enemies, God had prepared this table before him, anointed his head with oil. His cup was overflowing. You see the, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated for us. The kind of love that John is talking about here that we are called to extend to others and to one another often doesn't look pretty. It's often very difficult and painful. But this is the crucible through which God refines and shows us what, God, what love truly is. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, you may be familiar with that story. It's a fantasy fiction series that is unapologetically exploring Christian themes. And there's two characters talking about Aslan the lion, who's the Christ figure. Uh, Mr. Beaver and Susan, one of the children who has found her way into Narnia. And uh, Mr. Beaver is telling Susan about Aslan. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan responds, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The kind of love that Christ demonstrates for us was not safe for him. It cost him his life. 
the kind of life that we are invited into by God is not a safe life, but it is good because Christ is king and he is good. For this reason, I would never ask this kind of love from someone who's not a Christian. It would be borderline abusive for me as a spiritual leader to look at someone who doesn't know God and tell them to place themselves in vulnerable positions with no hope of respite or reward. It would be like telling someone to go into battle without armor or a weapon because it's the right thing to do. That would be a lie. But Christian, I know that you have been given armor and protection. And I know that even if the worst happens, though your body, mind, even mental health may be mangled, your God is so good, your soul will remain untouched and there is a day when all will be perfectly restored for you. I'm very conscious of how tall an ask this is that Christ has made on my life and to all of us. But as the apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Time and again in the scriptures, we are reminded that we will face affliction and suffering and pain in this life, but not to be alarmed because, or, uh, or despairing about it because we have a hope that is to come of a future and glorious inheritance, an eternal weight of glory that we can't possibly understand today. So if you're not a Christian, I'm not asking you to lay down your life for others today. My invitation to you is to stop trying if you are. Look at Jesus instead. Stop trying. Look at Jesus. Look at God himself who laid down his life for you and enjoy his love today, maybe for the first time. It was for you, his enemy, that he died so that by faith alone, through no works of righteousness on your part, you could become his friend. Come to Jesus so that you can truly know him and his love. You can do this today. If you are a Christian in here, hear John's invitation to do the same. We never graduate from this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Enjoy the love that he has shown you. Bask in it, be filled by it because the task before us is impossible without knowing God and his love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love, with, love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The way John structures the displayed love of God for us in this passage tells us how we can understand the love to which we are called, as we've talked about already. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent the son to be the propitiation for our sins. Likewise, the son sends us into the world so that our neighbors might find life through our engagement with them which is nothing short of God engaging with them. And this is not because they're asking us to do it, because we love them so much that we are willing to lay down our lives before them to tell them and to introduce them to the one who we know. There are two main things that I wanna point out here in John's final encouragement in our passage for us to love one another. First, 
In verse 12, John tells us that no one has seen God. You see that? This is a special interest of John's, both in his gospel and in his letters. God is invisible, and it's clear that God intends his people to be the ones to put him on display in the world. And how will we put God on display for the world around us? John says that God will abide in us. God will dwell with us, verse 12, as we love one another. The love that believers have for one another demonstrates that the unseen God lives among us. And this is what John means by him saying that God's love is perfected in us. That word perfected refers to a goal that has been accomplished. God's love for us is purposeful. God loves us for a reason. Of course, part of that purpose is that we would enjoy God's love and receive it ourselves and bask in the glory of being loved by our heavenly father. But it's also not supposed to terminate on us. God's love for us is to be perfected by, to to meet its goal in demonstrating love for others. God loved us so that we would love others. Because in our love for one another, not only will we know and enjoy God abiding among us, church, as we love one another, but this is also the way that people outside will see and come to know and perhaps even experience God's love themselves. The second thing is this. As I was studying, I was just thinking about why our love for one another is so important to God. Why do you think, why is it so important to God that we love one another? I thought about an analogy. There's nothing quite like watching someone love your kids really well. I love my kids. I have two beautiful daughters. Tallulah is five, Harper is three. I know my daughters. I know their strengths and their weaknesses. I know the cutest things about them and the less cute things about them. I'm not an angry person, but if you pick on my kids, I cannot promise that I won't come unhinged. There's nothing like watching my kids being loved well, and there's nothing like the res- I've never experienced a response, like watching my kids be mistreated by someone or mistreat one another. On the other hand, though, there are a few things that fill my heart like watching someone love my daughters well. I want to pause here and talk for a moment about Caitlin. You guys know that we announced last week that Caitlin is leaving uh, to, be, to move closer to her family. And I want you to know that um, the way that Caitlin looks at my kids, the way that she labors day after day, week after week for the kids in our church is something that fills my heart with so much gratitude. God loves my children. And through them, he loves me through Caitlin. Those of you who serve in Sojourn Kids, the the culture, the prayerful dependence, the love that characterizes the whole Sojourn Kids team is what is that that is what it is because of Caitlin's leadership and who she is and the love that she has for our kids. It's tempting to exaggerate, of course, you know, using superlative terms when someone leaves to go, you know, move on to the next thing. But guys, I truly feel dwarfed in the room as a leader when I'm with Caitlin, as a lover of others when I'm with Caitlin. I've learned more from her over the years by watching her leadership, her humility, her love for me and all those around her that I could ever describe. And watching her love my kids in a way that has multiplied into a team of people who love my kids so well is something that brings me joy and gratitude like very few things in life. And this is straight from God. 
This is what happens when someone is not just born of God for themselves, but who gives her life right back to him, seeking to walk in the spirit, to grow and mature, to grow in love. Caitlin is not the only one in her church who I could say this about, but I don't wanna miss the opportunity to say this about Caitlin, given the timing. Caitlin is an excellent illustration of a passage that teaches us what life looks like when you have been born of God. She's not perfect. God still has much to do in and with her, but God is unmistakably with her. And I, along with everyone around her, especially those of us who've had the privilege of working close with Caitlin, have come to know the love of God more clearly through her. Brothers and sisters, let me finish with this picture. What are we doing together as a church if we don't have love? The apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, then I have nothing. Notice that in that list of things that Paul says about doing, that he's not, he doesn't say anything bad there. It's all really good things. It's some of the, the t- speaking in tongues and prophecy may be a little bit controversial, but all of that is good things for the sake of loving one another and building up the church. These are all good things, but as Paul says, it's possible to do all of these good things without love. And he says what the outcome is if all of those things are done without love. He says, it's good for nothing. Brothers and sisters, how do we get the kind of love? How do we get this kind of love? How do we get access to the kind of love that will make us into better lovers of others, better lovers of one another, better lovers of the world around us? It is only in and through God who sent his only son to give himself for us that we may have life. Jesus didn't come to inform our intellects primarily. He didn't come to give us a playbook to follow ethically. Jesus came for our very hearts. Just as you can't think your way into new hungers, you can't think your way into better love. You have to experience it. And so brothers and sisters, friends, look at him. Look at God who loved you so deeply that he gave his life for you. Be captivated by it, be filled by it. And then as we together seek to live faithfully, inviting God to help us become better lovers of one another, this might be, make us more into the kind of church that will transform the community and world around us for his glory. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving yourself for us for dying so that we might have life, for suffering so that we might have blessing, for loving us so that we might have a picture of what love truly is. Love, we are, Lord, we are in a world where love is defined so variously that it is anxiety-inducing. 
are my loves in the right place? Am I loving the right things? Is my love for this person just as it needs to be or is it gonna change tomorrow with the next definition or the next demand on my life? Thank you, Lord, that in the face of a world that is so clearly struggling and has been struggling as long as there has been people to define loves ourselves, thank you for displaying for us, revealing to us what love truly is. I pray that you would captivate us with your love for us in such a way that informs our lives of love for one another. Make us into a better loving church, please, God. We need your help. We have a lot of work to do and this journey of becoming good lovers is not, it is too great for us. And so we need your help and we're so grateful that you're here. We're not asking for perfection. We just ask that tomorrow, on account of our engagement with you by your spirit through your word this morning, that we'd be a little bit better lovers than we are today. Thank you, Lord. We need you, we love you, we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.